In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in us, O Holy Spirit, that all our thoughts may be holy. Act in us, O Holy Spirit, that all our work, too, may be holy. Draw our hearts, O Holy Spirit, that we love but what is holy. Strengthen us, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard us, then, O Holy Spirit, that we always may be holy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. May it please thee and give thee praise, O Sovereign Lord. The sign of the cross. Identifies the authority of our faith. Yesterday we considered briefly how to be baptized means to be made one of God's, to be an adopted child of God. And so then to be blessed by him and to be given a mandate to represent him, to speak on his behalf, to govern in his place. It was also mentioned yesterday that, albeit a few hours after the fact, that participating in the Eucharistic procession on Corpus Christi can convey a plenary indulgence. Maybe you can remember that next year. What was not mentioned specifically from page 57 of the Manual Indulgences is that a plenary indulgence is granted to the faithful who on the occasion of a mission have heard some of the sermons and are present for the solemn conclusion of the mission. So maybe you can remember that next year too. Imagine what I'll let you know tomorrow what I should have told you today. Maybe you've wondered In being baptized, why is it that we use water? And why do we use it the way we do? If we were to simply observe a typical baptism in a Catholic church, we would come up with many different beautiful and inspirational explanations. And some of them would come close to uh, the truth. It's very helpful to remember one central aspect of baptism, which we we say frequently, it's a familiar phrase, that in, in baptism we have died with Christ, and so we rise to new life. It's very familiar. It's very helpful to remember that originally baptism was given by immersing someone in water in moving water in a river or a stream three times, each time invoking the persons of the Holy Trinity, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The immersion in water conveys most simply our going into the tomb, our dying. What would catch people's ear quite awkwardly is in effect that in in being baptized, we are symbolically drowning. Although that conjures up a variety of other images. 
such as someone struggling or not wanting to get baptized or little baby's heads spinning around and screaming bloody murder as they get baptized. For a good reason, the church doesn't use that language of drowning to describe baptism, but unapologetically speaks of baptism as the means by which we die with Christ. It's in baptism that we participate in the death of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. For the last several decades, the use of the Paschal candle is mandated for the baptismal ceremony, and it helps us have that profound symbol of our Lord's resurrection right there, immediately following the baptism and the anointing as the lighting of the candle from that which represents Christ risen. And so St. Thomas Aquinas will, will admit that water is proper because it connotes cleansing, also because it's universal and it's necessary for human life in a way that oil and wine are not, but also because it is that symbol of the tomb which the fathers of the church had already preached on for many centuries. We very frequently remind ourselves of baptism, hopefully we do, when upon entering a church we put our finger or our three fingers into the holy water and make the sign of the cross. Hopefully we know that that invokes our baptism and also conveys actual grace, not sanctifying grace, but within, with proper intention and proper contrition for our sins, that actual grace can take away our venial sins if that's all we have on our soul. Cleansing us to be prepared to come and enter into these sacred mysteries. In the same way that the baptistry classically is not only near the entrance of the church, but is separate from the entrance to the church. And that octagonal building would be the place where you would go in order to be able to even darken the door of a church. For centuries, unless one was baptized and a member of the church, they were not even permitted to be present when the Mass was being offered. And so it was a separate building. In order to get baptized, you obviously couldn't go into church. You had to go into a separate building. And once you're baptized, then you can come into church. It's for that reason that the, one, of the great, one of the great early philosophers of the church, St. Justin Martyr, wrote a letter to the Roman Emperor, Antoninus Pius, explaining what it is that Christians do during the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Because only Christians were able to be present. The outside world knew that Christians were eating the body and blood of Jesus. Can you only imagine what they thought happened when Christians gathered for worship on Sundays. Meanwhile, there were rituals of other religions that involved bloodletting and the consuming of flesh and blood of victims, animals, especially in the Mithraic temples, which you can still visit in the ruins of ancient Rome. And so St. Justin Martyr makes very clear, we aren't doing what they do in the Mithraic temples. But very simple, very simply, and very serenely, in the second century, St. Justin Martyr makes very clear that we take bread, and we take wine, and we say the words, the priest does, 
In fact, he very beautifully talks about how the priest leads the prayers to the best of his ability, which makes you wonder. some, you know, there was some patience and humility involved in listening to the priest try to lead the prayers, even back then. And then, with, with, with perfect symmetry, says that just as truly as the man Jesus really is God, that bread and wine truly become God. No ambiguity, no lack of clarity, no lack of simplicity or confidence. It didn't convince the Roman emperor that there was nothing pernicious about the Christian religion and St. Justin Martyr became St. Justin Martyr. The door to being able to witness those sacred mysteries is baptism. And so what is it that we do when we take that holy water and we, we make that sign And we say those words, and we remind ourselves of baptism. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The Roman custom of reverence for mentioning the persons of the Holy Trinity is to bow. To bow profoundly if we're standing up. To bow even with our shoulders if we're sitting down. The Eastern tradition is to make the sign of the cross when they hear the Trinity mentioned, each person. And the sign of the cross isn't just made from your forehead to the middle of your chest to each shoulder, but from, from the top of your head down to your feet, and then from one side to the other. The entire body and soul of the Christian is identified with Christ crucified. It's in His death that we have forgiveness of sins. And it's through His death and our baptism that we rise to everlasting life. And so it's true, as we mentioned yesterday, when we make the sign of the cross or when we invoke the Trinity in that way, or even God simply in that way, in the name of God, amen, we are saying, what I am about to do I am doing in the name of God. I know it is the will of God. I am doing it on His behalf. We are also very frequently, when we, when we make that sacred gesture, identifying ourselves, our body, our soul, with Christ crucified and risen. We enter into the church... And the first thing that everyone notices, even if they are not believers, because now, well, you know, at least for the last 1,700 years, we don't let non-believers into church, we see our Lord crucified. A believer will know what's just beneath him, the tabernacle, identified by a veil and a sanctuary lamp. When we were very, very young, we, we simply knew that the cross was always there. If we had good memories of being in church as, as little ones, we had good memories and good associations of everything that was in the church. The holy water and the stations and the windows and the icons and the crucifix 
And then at a certain point in our lives, maybe we were four, maybe we were six, we looked up and we thought, oh my goodness, I know what that is. Someone similar to that moment when I was driving on the Beltway as a young new driver, age 16, getting off at my exit, I grew up in Annandale, outer beltway Annandale, I should be specific, right behind Fairfax Hospital, and it's the exit seven, which is Gallows Road, you know, so you get off at Gallows Road and you head towards towards, uh, Fairfax Hospital and, you know, there's my neighborhood. You just get used to it. You get used to the sound and the sight. There's the road and there's the exit. And now that I was driving and really paying attention, this was before texting and driving. It wasn't before drinking a Slurpee and driving. I'll admit that. I was blown away. I was exiting the Beltway, looking up at this sign, realizing it says Gallows Road. I I know what gallows are. That's disgusting. (laughs) And then you imagine, okay, so what? There must have been a gallows there. Was it over in, you know, Annandale at that end of the road? Was it up at Tyson's at that end of the road? Who knows? I still haven't found out. I'm not sure I want to know. We get used to it. It's familiar. It's just, it's, it's a name, it's a sound, it's, it's comfort, it's home. And then you, then you realize, oh my goodness, that means, that means death. That is a sign that somebody died, some real person. So why, you might ask, is that the obligatory symbol in a Catholic church? Few things are required in Catholic architecture for a church. An altar properly separated by a sanctuary, a tabernacle, candles, sanctuary lamp, and a crucifix. Are we obsessed with death? Are we obsessed with this? Do do the anti-Catholics out there have it right that we are somehow just perverse in our obsession with this this symbol. In your hymnal, perhaps you've heard it on Good Friday. It's been sung on Good Friday for well over 1,500 years. Is the hymn, Vexilla Regis. It's number 380. Don't worry, I won't ask you to sing it. But if you want to follow along, you might open your Adoramus hymnal. It was in the year of 569, on the 19th of November, The Byzantine Emperor Justin II, having sent to France a relic of the true cross, at the request of St. Radagunda, who by that time had already become a member of the monastery of Saint Croix, the Holy Cross in Poitiers, in triumphant procession, 
the relic of the true cross, before which the proper act of reverence is a genuflection, not just a bow. The already then famous Venantius Fortunatus composed this hymn for this triumphal parade. The royal banners forward go, the cross shines forth in mystic glow, where he is man who gave man breath, now bows beneath the yoke of death. Fulfilled is all that David told in true prophetic song of old, how God the nation's king should be, for God is reigning from the tree. O tree of beauty, tree most fair, ordained those crimson bow, proclaims the king of glory now. Blessed tree whose chosen branches bore the wealth that did the world restore, the price of humankind to pay and spoil the spoiler of his prey. O cross, our one reliance, hail. Still may thy power with us avail. More good for righteous souls to win and save the sinner from his sin. To thee, eternal three, in one, let homage meet by all be done. As by the cross thou dost restore, so rule and guide us evermore. That's one of 47 different English translations of the Vexillaregis. The Latin phrase that comes from the fifth verse, you know very well. And you already know that as much as we love the Adoramus hymnal, it didn't quite choose the right translation for the fifth verse. O crux, o crux ave, spes unica. Hail, O cross, our only hope. The Christian doesn't shudder before the cross in shame. In Rome, there are already churches uncovered where there is obvious evidence of the crucifix being painted on the wall of a church as early as the third century. And certainly, the fish and the key row, or the Yoda key, actually, are beautiful early images of Christian symbolism. But we know that the cross was a symbol of the ancient Christians persecuted by the Romans because the anchor was the cross disguised so that it would be known to a Christian but no evidence to the Romans seeking to persecute the believer. No, instead the cross was a sign of victory. In the Roman forum there's a Gloriously detailed column, Trajan's column. You'll see it as you go just into the Roman Forum. This spiral up this marble column showing the Roman armies coming back to ancient Rome victoriously. And what are their banners? What are their signs of victory? The symbols of the people that they just conquered. Their flags, their signs... The cross is our sign of victory. Christ conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered evil. The battle is completely won. The war is over. There are still a few skirmishes skirmishes playing out. But he's won the victory. Don't we think there's a reason why the risen Christ still has the wounds in his hands and his side to be able to show what he actually accomplished? 
far more glorious than his body being restored back to pristine health as it was before the crucifixion. He shows what he won. This is the evidence of victory. Nothing of which to be afraid or ashamed. The cross isn't equivalent to our uh, showing something awkward or embarrassing. It's our glory. It's our hope. It's on the cross where the blood flows that takes away our sins. It's the very nature of the cross to show that he really did rise from the dead. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, we wouldn't be Christian, we wouldn't be here in the first place. So we don't need an empty cross as though there's some way that we would go back to Golgotha on Easter Monday, maybe, and contemplate uh, the cross. No, we contemplate Christ. Victorious. And so it's the cross that gives us the courage to hope. Because I know that no matter what, Christ has redeemed me. No matter what, Christ has redeemed everybody. Because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, no one is beyond the reach of God. Everyone has the possibility of salvation, even the least likely. The courage to hope, remember though, is not the courage to be optimistic. Now, I'm an optimist in the truest sense. Some people will say things, things are so bad, things couldn't get any worse than they really are. And I say instead, no, they can get worse. Hope The theological virtue of hope is that we trust in the fulfillment of God's promises of salvation, of glory in heaven, where every tear will be wiped away and there will be no more arthritis, no more taxes, no more strife, just peace, happiness, joy, love. The cross reminds us that I have, I have not yet begun to suffer. And regardless of what is asked of me in the future, I, I will persevere. I will not lose hope. I will not think, now, now God's forgotten about me. Impossible. Moreover, in the face of the worst kinds of suffering, when someone is innocent, suffering grievously, They're tempted to believe that they deserve it. They're tempted to believe that God hates them. They're tempted to believe that there is no God. Because human beings are wired for justice. If something is happening that is bad, we ask why. And we will will turn the universe inside out to try to explain why this makes sense. Turning God into a monster or into a myth. Because that innocent person is suffering. Or they turn themselves into the monster thinking that I, I deserve to be treated this poorly. Something must be awful about me. This must just, 
this must indicate how, how little value, how little dignity I really have that people treat me like this. No. Look at the cross. Look who's on the cross. Is he, is, is, did he deserve that? No, he didn't. Is he innocent? Yes, he is. Could anyone be more innocent? Impossible. Your suffering doesn't mean that you necessarily did something to deserve it. The courage to hope, the courage to know that this isn't how I will always live. The courage to know that this isn't how life is always going to be also involves the courage to say, those people who did bad things to me did a bad thing. They will be punished. And for the suffering that remains, I won't let it separate me from God anymore. I'll know that when Christ cries for his friend and when Christ cries over the sins of Jerusalem, he's, he's crying for me because he loves me. I know that when he's offering forgiveness and kindness and tenderness, he's offering it to me. I know that even when I do deserve punishment and suffering, that I can go to the cross and be forgiven. Occasionally when, when someone's in the confessional and they are unburdening themselves of, of, of great and terrible things and have a desire for more than being exonerated. They, they desire for things to be made right. They desire to suffer for what they did. They desire for, for, the, for the lie to be over. Sometimes I'll ask the question, now, you know that what you did deserves that you die. But are you going to let Jesus' death on the cross count for you? Or do you want to, or do you insist on suffering that yourself? And of course, with, with tender gratitude, they accept Jesus' death on the cross to substitute for their own. And they know that forgiveness isn't cheap. They know that forgiveness isn't, uh, we're being exonerated. Uh, you filthy, wretched people, you're no good. Just get out of my face and yes, you're forgiven. That's not, that's not mercy. Mercy is you will be made right and what you have done will be repaired. And the suffering that will be demanded will be offered up. But it's too much for you to do. I will do it for you, Jesus says. And so even in, even in the face of the despair that we cause ourselves because of our sins, there's courage to hope. There's courage to hope that one day I can be in heaven and it's actually, it will be proper for me to be in heaven. It won't just be some anomaly of, oh, well, who let that person in? No, I, will, I, will, I can be made whole. I can be cleansed of my sin. I can, I, can, I can be the temple of the Holy Spirit. I can become who God wants me to be because of the blood of Christ on the cross. And so this triumph deserves 
to be celebrated and honored. It is that hinge, that pivot, where our, our earthly eyes look just over the altar and then go up to heaven. Christ leads us to his Father. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring us into this arena in the first place. And then through the person of Christ who offers the sacrifice of himself on our behalf, we are actually present in him. For good reason, we adore the Blessed Sacrament and know that our Lord is truly present here, body, blood, soul, and divinity. We know that he allows himself to be adored by us. When we think about how the prayers of the Mass are the prayers of Christ, when we recognize that the prayers of yesterday's feast day, relatively new in the Roman liturgy, just 600 years old, or rather 800 years old now, written by St. Thomas Aquinas, the prayers for the Feast of Corpus Christi, not quite as new as the prayers for the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart. Coming up on Friday, a solemnity, like Easter Friday, the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart is a day when you ought to eat bacon because it's a day when penance is not to be done. Two days of the year when a Friday is a solemnity of necessity, the Sacred Heart and Easter Friday. The prayers of Corpus Christi in a, in, a, in a noticeably different way, are addressed to Christ. The ordinary prayers of the Mass, and on almost every other Sunday of the year, the proper prayers of that Mass are directed to God the Father. It is Christ on the altar who is looking at us and loving us and teaching us and giving us grace. But it is also Christ at the altar leading us forward to worship God the Father. It's the, it's the triumphal parade of victory back to heaven. He's won. As he, and he's allowing his victory to be our victory. He wants us to be with him. He wants us to go where he's going. He wants us to be with the Father. No mere human being could ever hope for anything that beautiful, that glorious, were it not for the cross, were it not for his suffering and his death. And we would never know it had he not risen from the grave. And we wouldn't be part of it and beneficiaries of it unless we ourselves have died and have risen through the waters of baptism. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.